So we'll come to the first of these treasures that the very necessary first step, as we've mentioned, of mindfulness and how we understand mindfulness. And I think it is important to acknowledge that in, in the teachings, mindfulness is a, is a very nuanced word. It has many different dimensions. And I think the reason why it's important to understand these nuances, because at different moments in our experience, different moments in our lives, we will find ourselves supported by one of the nuances of mindfulness, perhaps more helpfully than one of the other ones. It doesn't mean that that nuance of mindfulness leaves a whole landscape of sati behind, but it's important to know what we can draw upon. This word sati, it's, it's the Pali word for uh, mindfulness that has been translated as mindfulness. Probably more accurately, a present moment recollection. And it has, it, it's a recollection of the present moment, but it has its roots in this remembering, remembering, or to bear something in mind. So one of the aspects of that indeed is to, to have a sense of the present moment, be, to be collected within the present moment. But I think it's a bigger sense of bearing something in mind. It, it's a remembering also of these capacities we have for cultivating these treasures. So we're bearing in mind almost a, a sense of a body of understanding that leads us into the direction of greater freedom. So this present moment recollection is, is not somehow, you know, somehow suspension of time or, or, or possibility or pathway, because it's bearing in mind a sense of direction. Now, it's not just about observing. Sati is about responding. It's not just about watching or being attentive. Sati or mindfulness is about responding to this present moment. There's nothing kind of passive about sati uh, in the early teachings. I think probably one of the, I find one of the best ways of understanding the nuances of sati or mindfulness is through uh, you know, some of the images, the very powerful images that are used in the early teachings to uh, put depict or portray some of these nuances you know and there's there's many many of them so we're just going to draw on a few but I think one of the ways of understanding mindfulness is through the the image of, of someone who who's caught you know really tangled up in in a thorn bush you know a bramble bush and you know a lot of you have had this experience haven't you you go out mindfully picking blackberries and suddenly find you know you've got thorns all over your clothes and you can't get out so what's the worst thing to do in that moment you know start yanking and pulling and tearing you're probably going to pay a high price you know you're going to get scratched your clothes are going to get torn so the buddha speaks about carefully extricating oneself from the thorn bush you know carefully picking out the thorns from your clothes so that you can step out. And it really describes this dimension of mindfulness, which is, which is about really attending to the details, you know, really attending to the details, you know, not having an overgeneralized picture, you know, of I'm just going to jump out of this thorn bush. No, 
what is needed for me to find my way out of this tangle? A, a quality of real carefulness of knowing what is needed, a certain kind of circumspection. Um, another of the images of mindfulness is, is of a person standing of a watchtower, a high tower, having a panoramic view of, of the, 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 their world without ceasing on any particular details or preferencing any particular details. And, and it really describes this very spacious element of mindfulness and its inclusivity. It's not seizing upon what is really lovely and ignoring that which is difficult. It has this very prefer uh, non-preferential nature and a spaciousness. And, and you could perhaps sense in your own practice, in your own life, moments when that's really important. You know, when, when things are going on and it's very easy to get, you know, kind of drawn into the vortex of, you know, this particular experience or incident or crisis and you get drawn into the center of the storm you know and you kind of forget that bigger space and that bigger landscape and this is something we can remember we can remember and, and we can learn to cultivate that kind of spaciousness of sati another of the images that is used is of a a very strong post being hammered into the ground and tied to these posts are these six wild animals that just want to charge off and rampage their way, you know, through life. And it describes uh, the post in the ground is, is sati, it, it's mindfulness, and it has a restraining factor, a calming factor. And think about this in your experience, you know, when some, you know, great urge or impulse or compulsion arises, you know, I've just got to do this, or I've just got to get this, or, you know, I've just got to dwell on this, you know, or, or ruminate on this, you know, or I've just got to say this, you know, think about the power of those compulsions, the power of those impulses, and how often they take us to places very far from where we want to be. So mindfulness does have this restraining element. It's not about suppressing or ignoring, but it's really about not volunteering for suffering, uh, you know, because we know often where those compulsions and impulses are actually going to take us, you know. We might get a temporary moment of satisfaction or relief, but we know they're not helpful, very often not helpful. This restraining element. I remember teaching once in the States in, in a university setting and, you know, a lot of university settings, all of the walls are, you know, plastered with information posters, you know, and somebody coming back from a walking period and, you know, they'd read every leaflet and they'd read every sign, you know, they'd read every description of jobs they were never going to apply for, you know, descriptions of, of flats that, where they had a perfectly fine home, you know, they'd read all the safety instructions. And it was a sense of these unrestrained sense doors, you know, and acting out this, this kind of pattern of agitation this pattern of busyness, the pattern of there they're not being enough in this moment. And they reported feeling totally exhausted by the walking period. You know, they suddenly had all this, this kind of completely irrelevant information to process or to, you know, to kind of empty out. And you can sense that the virtue and the wisdom sometimes 
of building in those pause moments around our compulsions and our impulses and our speech and our actions. What is really being embodied here? What is being enacted? Does it serve the well-being of myself and others? Or does it lead to a greater sense of, afflict, uh, uh, of distress? So this restraining influence is in, is in the service of well-being. It, it's not in the service of becoming some buttoned up kind of person, you know, totally without any spontaneity. It's in the service of well-being, of, of building in those pause moments. Uh, I don't know, Chris, if you'd like to take a few of these images up. Yes. Um, and in a sense, also just to highlight uh, the variety. And the, again, what does that imply about our understanding of mindfulness? Because when we read about mindfulness in the media and sometimes in popular literature about mindfulness, even in some major research papers, one gets the sense of it as a much more binary, you're either mindful or you're not, you know, like switching on a light switch, okay, I'm mindful now, you know, not mindful. This is not how mindfulness is presented in the Buddha's teachings, or indeed in the 2600 year lineage of practice. It's much more multidimensional. You know, I think with Western minds, we kind of like things to have neat boundaries around them. And so oh, that's mindfulness. And then these other awakening factors are all separate. The Buddha's model of experience is much more one of dependent co-arising. How, how different factors of mind and indeed different qualities of mindfulness depend on uh, multiple other factors. And so just in the variety of similes, we get the sense of, wow, this is actually such a rich uh, territory that the Buddha is pointing towards. Uh, I think, you know, John Kabat-Zinn's comment about mindfulness as a placeholder for the whole Dharma we can see the, the kind of wisdom in that way of looking, that, that it's, it's multifaceted and always beneficial. One of the distinctions that's made in this list of awakening factors made in, in one of the suttas is that mindfulness is the one of these factors that is always beneficial. There may be times where investigating actually isn't the most helpful thing because I'm just getting more entangled in the thorns in my attempt to investigate, you know, or times where um, the, uh, you know, the quality of um, tranquility or ease actually just sends me to sleep, you know. And mindfulness is in a sense, you know, what, opens our experience in the moment to see what is helpful to cultivate. So it, it's always beneficial. I came across a quotation the other day that I really appreciated. It said, the price of freedom is continual mindfulness. 
the Buddha is saying that, that actually in this human life where we so easily get entangled in thorns, we, we so easily get pulled away from that tethering post, the price of freedom in any moment is sustained mindfulness. And, and that's the invitation of this path. And perhaps just one last thing to, to add, just to notice uh, how embodied the Buddha's similes are. It's, it's one of the things I've really been getting curious about in recent years is, is how these similes are not just kind of nice pictures. If you take that last image that Christina gave us of the, the post with these animals pulling away, maybe right now you can feel the tethering post of your spine and sense how it gets more steady when it's grounded in contact with the feet on the floor, the body on the chair. How when we are really inhabiting that quality of uprightness that the Buddha frequently recommended, a kind of embodied dignity, we are less uh, vulnerable to being pulled away, to be being kind of pulled away by what we see or hear or taste or imagine. Uh, and this, of course, can be so protective as a mindfulness teacher, can't it? When, when we're uh, sitting there and we've got, you know, maybe 20, 25 different experiences that people are having, and it's so easy, and maybe it's even easier when we're on Zoom and can get lost and pulled into those kind of dynamics, just to have that sense of the embodied tethering post to which we can return and from which we can practice relating to the experience of other people and the unfolding experience of the mindfulness class. So we want to spend just, I think, a little bit more time with this first of these treasures of mindfulness, because it is actually quite crucial to the development of the others that we actually really do begin to appreciate the landscape of sati. The next of the images that I would use is this quality of mindfulness that is both protective and discerning. These two together, protective awareness and discerning mindfulness. If you're a parent or looking after a vulnerable person, you actually know how important it is to um, protect their well-being. And in order to protect their well-being rather than trying to control, how important it is to discern what is helpful and what is unhelpful, what really supports their thriving and what undermines their thriving. And the image that is used in the text is the image of a, a wise and skillful gatekeeper standing at the gates of a city and warmly welcoming everything, every visitor that wants to support the thriving and well-being of the inhabitants of the city and politely acknowledges but doesn't welcome the visitors who seek to undermine that well-being. 
I think there's there's so many lessons we learn in our own lives and in our own practice about how to be a wise gatekeeper, what to welcome and what to acknowledge, but not actually, you know, well, you know, admit in and entertain. I know this is in contrast with the guest house poem that seems to suggest that, you know, everything should just come on in because everything has its own lesson to teach us. Some of those lessons we've already learned. You know, think of some of the things that, that the patterns that hammer at the gates of your city, you know, the patterns of rumination or the patterns of worry, you know, or, or the patterns of, of ill will. Sometimes we've learned the lessons, you know, we actually know where this takes us. We know how it undermines our well-being. We know the consequences. It's like there's no more insight left. And all we're left with is the habit. You know, the habit of worry or, or the habit of reactivity. We actually haven't got more to learn. Sometimes we, we know the conditions in our histories that have led to these patterns, uh, being having so much authority, we know the consequences. We know this is not the, the home that we want to abide in. You know? And there is something about acknowledging, ah, yes, worry again, knocking on the door. You know, rumination, knocking on the door. You know, uh, anxiety, knocking on the door. Aversion, oh, here, here is a version once more, you know. Maybe I don't need to feed this. Maybe I don't need to feed this. And, and actually making that choice to protect the well-being of your heart, often by cultivating something that is actually more, more, uh, more conducive to thriving. You know, it's not just about saying, no way, don't come in. It's actually, ah, oh, no, there's, a, there's another place I really am choosing to make my home. You know, perhaps in greater easefulness, more spaciousness, more, um, more, yeah, more kindness, more compassion. Perhaps there's a, a place I can make my home in this moment through cultivation that kind of fasts a pattern. You know, it, it, you know, the Buddha was so clear that if you want to keep a fire going, just throw the logs on it. You know. If you want a fire to die down and fade, just stop feeding it. And, and this is really so important, I think, in the development of this path, this, this discernment about what leads to affliction and what need, leads to the end of affliction, um, what leads to a greater sense of freedom and what leads away from that what leads towards more flourishing and what undermines this. This, is a dis this discernment quality is the bridge between mindfulness and skillful responsiveness. You know, without that discernment quality, we just basically watch things. You know, we have an open door and, and you know, the things that, you know, everything that marches through that door, you know, it's like, ah, these cycles cycles of distress, cycles of repetition, you know, cycles of repetition. I think this is what discernment is helping us to step out of and to, to walk a different pathway. So discernment and protection are so closely married and so, so important in this path. You know, without it, we have, we have passivity. 
you know we have a very painful level of attention of oh no not again you know not again it's recognizing we can let go of that not again phrase in our lives you know there is some other possibility the perhaps another image that's really useful is much more the the medical image you know the diagnostic image you know of a a person showing up uh to a surgeon with a wound that the the wound in the early teaching is an arrowhead embedded in our someone's arm that's not likely to be our wound but we have lots of wounds that may be embedded um and a good surgeon doesn't just charge in with a saw you know a good surgeon will palpate the nature of the wound in order to make a diagnosis in in order to recommend a course of treatment and in, in order to be able to offer a prognosis of healing a prognosis of healing and this really describes this investigative level of mindfulness you know what's actually going on here and it was going beneath our concepts our assumptions and our ideas or conclusions about what's happening all of our narratives and what's actually going on here and what would be healing what would be healing so investigation is really in the service of understanding and understanding is in the service of healing you know understanding is in the service of of liberating and this is such a, a a skillful tool to develop in our lives you know that we because when we have com- uh, conclusions and assumptions there's often comes a sense of resignation you know oh this is how i am you know this is how my life in that life is a sense of despair or impossibility and it's so bearing in mind that mindfulness is in the service of understanding and healing our stories are not the end point of anything you know our our conclusions even our patterns that seem to have uh, you know beginnings generations before we were even born you know they are not life sentences you know and the the buddha was so clear and i think we need to be so clear that just because some particular pattern of ours has a long history it doesn't mean it has an equally long future it's not a life sentence you know and mindfulness is actually you know offering us a present a present that is not bound to to historical patterns through understanding but there's another nuance of mindfulness that comes along that with that and the the image in the text is of a a parent caring for their child that they love dearly with kindness and with compassion with generosity you know with protectiveness and this quality of kindness you know is the the qualitative dimension of mindfulness of sati i at my own sense is it when kindness is absent so is mindfulness when kindness is present so is mindfulness that these two are so interwoven and intermarried and you know without that element of kindness well you know this is another part of mindfulness extended family without the kindness woven in you know we can just get this cold stare of attention 
You know, we, we there's often too little kindness. And, and I think there is never too much. This is what engages us with our world within and our world around us in a way, again, that's dedicated to, to healing and to liberating and bringing distress to an end. Perhaps, Chris, you'd like to. Thank you. We can hear how uh, these qualities are mutually supporting and ultimately inseparable. You know, just as Christina says, mindfulness and kindness, they can't be separated. You know, and the Buddha was really clear about that. And we can hear how in this simile of investigation, we also see how the, the second of these awakening factors investigation of, of experience, you know, this is already a dimension of mindfulness. This is already a dimension of mindfulness. And there is a natural flow, isn't there, from uh, choosing to be present, choosing to find our feet, to be present for a breath. And then the curiosity about Oh, what's happening right now? What is this? How is this moment? And we can see that uh, that that inquiry does depend on having, in a sense, protected the mindfulness. We think about this, say, in eight-week courses and the role of the breathing space which was created as a protection for the heart-mind in its vulnerability to, for instance, depressive relapse or the activation that comes from a very strong trigger. You know, the, the encouragement, what's the first thing to do is to pause you know, and to find, to recognize, oh, activated, you know, could be carried away here to find some steadying anchor that is not caught up in that pattern of activation. So maybe it's the, the breath in the belly, or maybe it's the soles of the feet or the seat or the hands. And to, to in a sense, practice not going there. You know, this recognition that there is such a thing as wise avoidance. That, that, as Christina was saying, mindfulness isn't about just opening to everything and being flooded. It's actually about the discernment, which says, okay, actually, this is not a moment where I feel sufficiently resourced or sufficiently grounded or sufficiently rested to engage with this. If, if we have the luxury of doing so. And if we don't have the luxury and we're right in the thick of it, just to find our feet in the midst of that offers what in trauma therapy is called a break rather than an accelerator. It's so easy for the accelerators of thoughts or moods or painful body sensations to speed us up and carry us away. And part of the discernment in mindfulness and in the factor of investigation is to notice what activates 
and what regulates, what grounds, what collects. This is, this is actually the, the factor of samatha in the uh, seven factors, the, the penultimate one of collectedness and resourcing. And so often it feels as if our practice is about kind of moving between places of resourcing or moments of resourcing, moments of grounding, and then interest in what's arising, curiosity about this moment's experience or this moment's patterning. And that, and that you know, we, we see how these awakening factors really support each other in this way. That, that, and again, this is, this is recognized in the tradition that the factors of collectedness and, and, and steadying, that supports investigation. Sometimes called pendulation, this movement between, say, the soles of the feet, and which is a break, you know, it's a ground. It's the soles of my feet are not anxious. This is good to know because my torso may be really anxious or my thoughts may be really anxious, but feet, seat, hands may all be breaks on the, the nervous system that can really support a, a steady, uh, a steadiness that enables an inquiry into what's happening, a using of that surgeon's probe to investigate, a, a, a meeting of the guests at the city gates and, and really having a discernment, okay, is this helpful, is it not? So really to sense the kind of dynamic interplay of, of these different factors that we're reflecting on today. There are, I think, a dozen other, another a dozen more images that we could probably draw on, but I have a feeling that we need to move on a little bit if we're going to do more than one treasure today. But just the last little piece I just think is important to say about Sati is to, to recognize how it works. You know, I think the questions often come of, you know, you know, how does mindfulness make a difference? We actually know that mindfulness can make a real difference in our thriving and our living consciously and our engage how we engage. But what's actually going on behind the scenes? And then what's going on in the background? And so we look at some of the, you know, almost like the kind of um, functions of mindfulness that we're, we're developing without necessarily consciously labeling that. Although the first of these, you know, is developing this capacity for simple knowing. You know, in the discourse, you see it to know a sound as a sound, to know a sensation as a sensation, to know a thought as a thought. And you, you see how this is built into two eight-week programs in terms of thoughts as just being events that are passing through. Um, it sounds easy, but something very profound happens in developing this capacity because essentially we step out of identification or begin to step out of ident identification. We begin to step out of the eye of the storm. You know, it, I, am, I am no longer my thought. My thought is no longer who I am. You know, a thought is a thought. The sensation in the body is not a self-description. 
It's not a, a, a forerunner of, of something terrible. It's a sensation in the body, a sensation as a sensation. So it's developing, I, I think of it as developing almost a kind of conversation with what's happening rather than I am what is happening. I've developed a kind of dialogue, you know, ah, sensation is happening, thought is happening, sound is happening, but you can sense the easing of the contractedness that comes with identification. You know, because every moment of identification, every moment of holding or clinging is always a moment of shrinking. You're developing a sense of spaciousness, of being able to hold what is happening. And of course, mindfulness is slowing down some of these processes. So they can be seen. They can be seen. It is a huge, huge um, step. Another of the dimensions of mindfulness or functions of mindfulness, we, we've already just spoken about this protective awareness, knowing really how to be a wise gatekeeper in our lives. This is so important. Another of them we've also spoken about in these similes in terms of the investigative awareness. You know, as Chris has said, knowing, knowing when things are present, knowing when they're absent, Knowing how they change, you know, knowing this fluidity of process, of body as process, of mind as process, as life as process, not these kind of static moments, this investigative awareness that is actually aligning ourselves with those processes in the light of understanding. Yes, things do change. Yes, there is instability in our world. Uh, yes, we're not in control of the world of conditions. And guess what? If I'm not holding and identifying, it really isn't all about me. It's not who I am. There's the, the reframing of cognition, which again is kind of stepping out of many of these fixed, fixed ways of seeing, you know. We're stepping out of these fixed ways of seeing, um, much more, you know, that are, that are flavored often by the hindrance patterns, you know, often flavored by aversion or flavored by anxiety or flavored by, by doubt. Discovering actually that we can, we're not a prisoner of those ways of cognizing, of cognitive process, that this too is fluid. Cleaning up the field of perception, you know, this is such a gift of mindfulness, you know, of, of severing the link between perception and emotional baggage and history and association that so stops me from seeing anything anew, so stops anything from being allowed to thrive or flourish. You know, that sense of I know because I know how I have experienced this in the past. You know, so sensation in the body is not a forerunner of a relapse into illness as it's perceived. Maybe it's a sensation in the body. The encounter with someone who, who we've struggled with in the past doesn't have to flavor our perception of how we see them. Cleaning up the field of perception of how we perceive ourselves often in such limited ways you know, William Blake put it that if the doors of perception were cleansed, the world would appear as it is infinite. 
And I, I think of our, ourselves as being students of the infinite, you know, rather than prisoners of the finite, you know, because when the doors of perception are colored by all of that association and baggage and emotional history, you know, it kind of takes a sense of wonder and awe and joyfulness out of our lives, you know, and we get stuck. I am, you are, this is. Um, there are so many, I think that this is always what is happening in the background of, of, of mindfulness. And as it is so, so essentially, so essential in the process of transformation. Well, I guess just to remind us of how each of these is present in eight week courses. You know, if, if we think just uh, briefly, this, if we had more time, we could open, open this up for a discussion, but we have other factors to get through. But simple knowing, first step of the breathing space, you know, recognizing what's here. Oh, this is anxiety. Protective awareness, going to an anchor, second step of the breathing space that really protects the mind from just getting lost in what's arising. Investigative awareness, say the exploring difficulty practice, or indeed the body scan is an investigative awareness, investigating sensations, or investigating the sensations that arise when we bring something difficult to mind. Reframing cognition. Many of you will know the MBCT phrase, thoughts are not facts. Oh, okay, that's, I'm, not, I'm used to relating to thoughts as facts. I'm reframing. Thoughts are mental events, not facts. You know, that, that's a reframing of cognition that we're invited to practice. Just like in uh, befriending practices, may I be safe and well, may I be peaceful. This is a reframing of how we may habitually relate to ourselves. Cleaning up the field of perception, of course, is what... Uh, MBCT and other mindfulness programs are really dedicated to the, 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 the gradual uh, kind of cleaning, clarifying, uh, healing of perception from some of the painful cognitions or the painful beliefs about ourselves, painful ways in which we get entangled in, in patterns of reactivity. So these, um, it's, I, I just love how these functions of mindfulness that we can find in the Buddhist teachings from 2,600 years ago. We look in contemporary mindfulness-based approaches and see these are very much the, the roles that mindfulness has. And again, this non-binary sense of what mindfulness is, it includes these and, and other dimensions too. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.